I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. I am also an Aries, and so I am vengeful. (laughs) This list is about black excellence. Excellence, period. You know, you come to the diary with this sort of muddled head, and you're sort of trying to untangle. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. February is Black History Month. And every year, CBC Books curates a list of writers to watch and read. That list is curated by our own Ryan B. Patrick. Ryan joins me in a half an hour to talk about the exciting authors and titles he's recommending this year. And to close the program, I'll talk with the form-busting, risk-taking writer Sheila Hetty. She'll tell us what she learned about her own life from creating her experimental memoir, Alphabetical Diaries. But first... Our Canada Read Spotlight continues. In a couple of minutes, Jessica Johns will be here, the author of Bad Cree, and she'll be joined by the filmmaker and former pro athlete Dallas Sunius. Dallas will be defending Bad Cree during the Canada Reads debates in March. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. The Canada Reads 2024 shortlist was officially revealed on January 11th. And one day before that, I had a top-secret interview with both the author and the champion of one of this year's contending titles, a book called Bad Cree. Jessica Johns is the author, and Bad Cree is her debut novel. Jessica is an interdisciplinary artist, which means she's an author, a poet, and a visual artist as well. She's also a Nahio auntie and a member of the Sucker Creek First Nation, She lives in Edmonton, and she joined me from the CBC studio there. Dallas Sunyas is a filmmaker and former professional volleyball player. He's both Nahio and Anishinaabe, and he's a member of the Chippewas of Nawash First Nation, located at Neashinigaming. He joined me in Toronto. And Bad Cree is a terrific, tense, sometimes terrifying, and often tender tale about a young woman named Mackenzie and her family in High Prairie, Alberta. Here is my conversation about the novel Bad Cree with Jessica Johns and Dallas Sunyas. Jessica Johns, congratulations on Bad Cree becoming a finalist in the 2024 Canada Reads debates. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And Dallas Sunyas, congratulations on becoming its champion. Welcome to you both to the next chapter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think champion is a strong word to throw (laughs) out right away because who knows... My debating skills. My I'm, wife I'm will tell you they're there. not great. I'm holding it up there, and now you just have to reach it. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I just hope I don't do a bad job championing this incredible book that the god Jessica Johns has written for us. That's a terrible start to an interview, I'm going to be honest with you. I just hope I don't do a terrible job. Is, is... That's how I feel. That's how I feel. Like, that's my, that's my background. You know, like, if an athlete... So I'm, I was an athlete. If yes. I go in thinking I'm going to win absolutely everything... That's the stupidest, like, rookie mistake ever. I got you it. just try to do your job the best you can every time you go into the gym. And I'm trying to translate that to this, because I've right. never done it, baby. This is the psychology of an athlete. There it is. Psyching himself out and up at the same time. That's what you're <laughs> listening to right now, Jessica. Well, I'm just so, so incredibly grateful that you chose Bad Cree. Um, and I feel so humbled by the fact that you, you know, read this book and it resonated with you in a way for you to take the plunge into something you've never done before and in championing it as, as you're going to do. So I just, I can't thank you enough. Well, Jessica, I'm going to give you a chance to thank him uh, profusely throughout this interview. But I want to ask Great. you, I want to ask you this. One year ago to the day was the publication yeah. date for Bad Cree. How would you describe the ride that you've been on with your with your debut novel over the last 365 days? I think describing it as a ride is is exactly uh, appropriate. It's just been a whirlwind. I have gone 
to a ton of literary festivals. I've been so graciously invited to many events across uh, Canada and in the States. Um, I was even in Australia for for the publication of Bad Creed there. Mm. Um, yeah, just even the outpouring of love from the community has been incredibly gracious as well. So I can't believe it was a year ago today, honestly. Mm. It feels like yesterday and also 10 years ago. Dallas, I think this is basically your first conversation that you're having with Jessica about Bad Creed becoming a Canada Reads finalist. So, you know, no pressure here, but you, you no longer have to talk about Jessica in the third person. She is uh, right there in your ears. What's the first thing you'd like to tell her about her novel? The first thing I'd like to do is talk about Jessica in the third person a little more. Ali, I, like just listening to her speak. You can tell, I, I love listening to her talk about her book or, or what inspired it, because you know, this is a person who really cares about words. She's thoughtful in the way she speaks. She takes time to make sure she gets the right word. And that just, to me, that's the sign of a really thoughtful writer. So I, I just, I just like hearing her speak. See, that's an athlete right there, Jessica. He took the pressure off himself and put it right back on you. I mean, it's pretty clever. What I'm watching here is uh, is some Jedi minds. It is mastery. So, Jessica, I want to dive into the book a little bit. The starting lines of Bad Cree are the following. Before I look down, I know it's there. The crow's head I was clutching in my dream is now in the bed with me. What prompted you to start your story with this severed crow's head in Mackenzie's hand? Well, a couple of, uh, of reasons or, you know, a couple of things really inspired me to start the novel in this way. The first is that I wanted to be transparent with the audience of readers of what they were in for. So it's a bit shocking. It's a bit of a shocking mm -hmm. first sentence. And there are, you know, horror elements weaved throughout this novel quite intentionally in various ways. And, you know, I wanted them to know that. I wanted them to know that this is what this book was about. And also, I really attach myself as a reader to books that grab me within the first paragraph. So I, I was being really intentional about how I grabbed my readers and yeah, I wanted to throw them right in the middle of the lake and, and I hope that that did that. Oh yeah, you definitely achieved that. And tell me, you know, without giving away any more than you want to, what, what has brought Mackenzie to this point of having these terrible dreams where she can bring things back into her waking world? I think more than anything, isolation really brought her there. She has been separated from her family for a number of years voluntarily. You know, she she left her her home community and her home territory, her family, um, because they experienced a um, death in the family, and they all grieve in very different ways. Once you meet the rest of the characters, you see that. And Mackenzie is incredibly avoidant. And, you know, one of her uh, coping mechanisms is to run. And I think that isolation really made just kind of the perfect situation for mm. these terrifying nightmares and dreams to come to her. And not only that, um, the way they affect her in her waking life and how she goes navigating them is also affected by her isolation and the isolation she's put herself in. Mm. Dallas, I wanted to ask you, you know, Bad Cree gives us this suspenseful mystery with elements of horror, like the crows that are constantly hovering around Mackenzie throughout the book and even on the, on the cover of the book. But there's also a softer, more vulnerable side to this story as well. It's a side that involves grief and love. And now that you're representing this book for, for Canada Reads, how would you describe it to people who haven't read it yet? I mean, it's a tough one because it's kind of a genre bender in the sense that it's not like a horror that's just smacking you in the face with wild, fantastical things over and over. There, as you mentioned, there's a story of family in it. And for me... Those are the elements that resonated with me the most. The stuff where she's talking to her auntie on the phone and her auntie's playing bingo and she's smoking and then, you know, there's people coming in and out of the friendship center. Like, I know that. From that point, I, I was lucky that I had a shorthand or I felt like I had a shorthand with the people in the book and the author right away. Um, not everybody's going to have that, but 
there's so much of this book that everybody can just chew into and then learn about this other way of life, this other way of living. That's why I thought, okay, this, this is one that everybody should probably read mm -hmm. and, and everybody will enjoy. Also, I don't think that's an answer to the question you originally asked. Can you hit me with it again? <laughs> I, mean, I think it is, but I was just, uh, the question is how, how would you describe this book to people right. who haven't read it? Yeah, I, I would say it's a horror told methodically almost through an indigenous lens, but maybe lens is not the right word, through an indigenous typewriter or something, because it's a book, it's not a movie. All right. Although, I, this is the thing, reading this book, I see the movie, yeah. you know, like I see exactly, I think that happens to everybody, but I'm thinking like lenses and like locations and stuff. I don't know who owns the rights, Jessica, but maybe we could talk off you're, air about You're that. leaning into your <laughs> filmmaker side right now. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You know? um, Jessica, I understand that during your, your Master of Fine Arts, you were at UBC and one of your professors told the whole class not to write about dreams. So first of all, why would he say that? And secondly, why did, why did you then decide to do the exact opposite and, and center basically this entire novel around dreams? Well, to answer your first question, he said that um, because he would, thought he was giving good advice. He was trying to say, don't write about dreams because they'll lose your reader. Like readers aren't interested in hearing about dreams. And so, you know, if you want to keep readers captivated, don't write about them. And that was incredibly antithetical to my cultural understanding of dreams and their significance in Creek culture. And so the reason why I decided to write a, what started as a short story that entirely centered dreams is because uh, I'm a Nehiao Esqueo. I am also an Aries. And so I am vengeful. <laughs> and I, I was like, I'm going to prove this man wrong. Not only am I going to write about dreams from a Nehiao Esqueo perspective, it is going to be exciting and interesting and it will keep readers captivated no matter what background they're coming from. So, yeah, so I did it at first to spite, <laughs> um, you know, and to prove something. But as it developed into the novel that it is now, um, my my perspective on that really changed. And I knew that in centering family and love and, and dreams as well, that it, it had to come from a, a place of compassion and, and yeah, true joy of storytelling. And so it did shift a little bit, but that is where it started. Dallas, how did the dreams in the novel work for you? Well, in the Nihiawa culture, like these things are incredibly important. I'll give you an example. My, my uncle Muslim, he lost his wife of, I think they were married like 60 years last week. Uh -huh. And he told me, he was telling me at the wake that she came to him the day before she passed and told him like, it's my time, I'm ready to go. You, it's time to let me go. So these things are incredibly important in our culture. Right. Um, I, can I ask Jessica a question? Oh, of course. I've been thinking about this the whole time. Jessica, your book is almost completely void of men dudes. Like there's no male <laughs> characters. And I realized that when I was almost finished the book and it's awesome. I love that about the book. Was, was that a choice you made or did that just end up happening? Yeah, I accidentally just left the men out. No, no, <laughs> it was it was certainly intentional. Um, Cree people, uh, Dallas, like as you know, were traditionally matriarchal. So I really wanted to, yeah, I really wanted to highlight, um, you know, a, a generational look at matriarchy and powerful women and mm. femmes as well, because uh, mm -hmm. Jolie is a two-spirit person who was also really important to represent queer Indigenous people as well. And women are our organizers. Um, they're how I understand how to be in community by watching my aunties and my mom move through the world and organize our family. And um, it's how I understand like politics and governance from a Nehio perspective. So I really wanted to honor that and honor them. And in saying all that, you know, men have a really important role in in Cree society as well. And it's actually why I was really excited about Dallas championing this book, because as a Napeo, as a as a man, you know, one of the roles is to 
you know, stand beside and uplift women. It is to champion us. And so I think this is actually a really traditional um, arrangement that um, Dallas is championing a book mm. by uh, Nahiawa Skwewek. I'll stand behind your work yeah. anytime. I'll, I'll be in the background anytime you need. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the women in this book and, and this idea of auntie power. Jessica, you've talked about this before. In fact, on this show... And uh, I enjoyed hearing what you said about uh, aunties in the past in the show and how you wanted to portray them. I wonder if you don't mind revisiting that and telling us how auntie power became such a significant theme in this novel. Yeah. So, you know, auntie in Cree when translated is little mother. And that truly is, I mean, uh, for me and many, um, not just Cree, but many indigenous people um, you know, have this um, kinship web where their aunties are their little mothers. They also help raise you. And that's certainly, you know, my experience growing up. I have many, many aunties, all of whom have um, played such a huge part in my development as a human being. And uh, the first person Mackenzie calls when these terrifying things are happening to her, it's not her cousins, it's not her sister, it's not her mom, it's her auntie. That's her first call. And I wanted to represent the really important relationship that we have with our aunties. And um, also personally, I am an auntie. I have nibblings, my, my nieces and nephews. And though I am not like a mother, I don't have children. I, I do have children. I, they are my kids too. And so I, I was thinking a lot about them as I was writing this and thinking in the mind of an auntie, the kind of book that I would want them to read when they're older to see a, a book filled with, again, these things that I have grown up seeing as well and maybe not uh, got to see represented as much in other forms of literature or media. Dallas, what does it uh, mean for you, this idea of anti-power, and how does it uh, resonate with you? I mean, I understand it because it's in my family, but it, it's in the Western understanding. It doesn't have to be your father's sister or your mom's sister. Like, for example, the homie Amber Midthunder, she's an actor. She's younger than me. Hmm. She's got big anti-energy, you know what I'm saying? Like, she takes care of people when she can. And same thing with my Coco auntie, who is actually my father's auntie, like, hmm. It's the same energy, you know, whether you're in your mid nineties or you're in your early twenties, anti-energy is just, it's something that you, you take on and you take care of people. Yeah. It's just understood within the culture. I'm going to, I'm going to take that with me, what you both have said, because I, I've been guilty of calling women younger than me, auntie. And they're like, don't you dare, don't you dare age me like that. And I'm going to say, no, it's an energy. Oh, it is. And it is a positive thing about you. That very much. You, it's an energy and, and, a, and a good thing that you give off. Yeah. You it's know, status. Now that you bring it up in, in the Nehiawa culture, like aunties are so crazy respected but when you talk about someone being an uncle it's usually burning them you know what yeah. i'm saying like yeah some greasy uncle stuff <laughs> uh, just like crushing pepsi you know what i'm saying sure. like, ch yeah trying to snag or whatnot but anti-energy is that's that that is something to be respected may it possibly dallas that you are touching on why jessica has so few men in this there it is uh, bingo book. bango yeah. <laughs> i wanted to talk about a, a couple of other things too jessica these other themes that you have in the book, one of them is the idea of generational magic and, and how it relates to generational trauma. Tell me, what is generational magic? I think that there is a lot of discourse around generational trauma and, and very validly, you know, talking about the traumas that are passed down, uh, traumas that live in the body, traumas that live on the land. And in that same logic, I think it's important to talk about you know, blood memory, you know, if, if our blood remembers, then it remembers everything. So it remembers magic, it remembers joy, it remembers beauty. And that's passed down too. So, you know, um, when Mackenzie is, is really looking at these things that are happening to her, and um, the rest of her family are, are, are speaking about these things, though they, they consider it at first, you know, maybe a curse or something bad. Um, there's a reframing that has to happen because not everything that, that is passed down is bad. And so 
you know, what else could it be but magic? Mm. Dallas, what is your connection to this? How, how would you describe the balance between generational magic and generational trauma in this book? I see the book, and maybe this won't answer your question, but it's what sparked in my brain mm. listening to Jessica talk about it. I see the book as a grief story. Again, this is not Jessica's speaking. This is just the way I, I, I see it. It's, it's a grief story that families from all over the world go through, but this is how it could be done through Nehiawak lens, um, knowing our history and, and the, the things that, that we've been taught and the, the way we see the world. I think somebody from a different background, if Mackenzie was, you know, Mackenzie English from somewhere in Europe, then maybe they go straight to a psychologist. Maybe they, they handle it differently. But this is how a young Nehiawakwe may handle the situation and and I, I understood it right away again I, that, that shorthand that i think I, I think i had with the author as soon as i started reading it that's how i understood the book i know that dallas um i know from this interview that dallas has a habit of diminishing his own um <laughs> uh, opinions before giving them but i also know that he's a very fierce competitor so i i think you've got a a great champion in your corner here jessica I think uh, I do too. Yeah. And uh, congratulations to both of you and, and good luck in Canada Reads. Thank, Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Hi, hi. Jimmy Gwich. Thanks for having us. Jessica Johns is the author of Bad Cree. She was in Edmonton and Dallas Sunius will be representing the book in this year's Canada Reads debates. He was in Toronto and to learn more about all of the Canada Reads 2024 finalists, you can go to cbc.ca slash Canada Reads. I'm Ron Hawkins. Uh, I'm in a band called Lowest of the Low. I'm a singer-songwriter. I'm based out of Toronto, born and bred in Toronto. And I'm reading Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. Doppelganger is a book about how she has been confused with Naomi Wolf, another intellectual who writes big brainy books, and uh, how that made her take a trip down a rabbit hole of looking at other Naomi, as she calls her, her uh, journey uh, from a progressive leftist into the world of Steve Bannon and the ultra right. Lowest of the Low is a very political minded band, and we've written a new record called Welcome to the Plunderdome, which is about some similar uh, problems in the world with uh, the fact that half the world uh, cannot agree on with the other half of the world on what reality is. And this book seemed to be right up that alley as well. I feel like uh, Lois Delos made a sonic twin for the book Doppelganger. Well, Naomi Klein has had an epiphany and sort of made a very strong case for the fact that uh, what plagues uh, progressives and leftists historically is that there's an awful lot of sectarian infighting about very specific uh, niche elements of things that need to be changed. Whereas the modern right created this home for anyone who feels displaced by what they call cancel culture or or uh, progressive uh, issues and she finds that to be very dangerous you know it's got both elements it's got some very serious uh, high-minded thoughts about where we're going as a culture but it also is a very odd uh, doppelganger story so there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of fun amusing weirdness in it as well dog ear Dog-eared. Dog-eared. The books that never get old. Hi, I'm Kim Fu, author of Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century, and the books I return to over and over again are David Rakoff's essay collections, Fraud, Don't Get Too Comfortable, and Half Empty. These days, I'm so inundated with wonderful new books that I don't get to reread much of anything. Uh, but I find that when I'm feeling stuck or burned out in my own writing, I can reread one of Rakoff's essays or even just a paragraph and feel inspired again. Uh, less by the content of the essays and more by the writing itself, just the way he puts words together. Uh, whether he's writing about the AIDS crisis or fancy olive oil or the Loch Ness Monster, uh, his every sentence is dense with meaning, wit, musicality, and surprise. We'll be back after these messages. 
I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Kinesia Lubrin, the author of Code Noir, and you're listening to The Next Chapter on CBC Radio 1. Since 2018, CBC Books has published a Black Writers to Watch list, and they know how to pick them. I don't know why I'm saying they. He knows how to pick them. I'm talking about our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick. Ryan has an impressive track record of identifying up-and-comers and stars of tomorrow. I'm not encouraging gambling, but I would put my money on him picking a winning list again this year. Ryan joins me now in studio to talk about some of his past picks and the writers he wants readers to pay attention to this year in particular. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ali. How's it going? Very good. So tell me, this list, let's go back to the start. How Mm. did this thing begin? So I've been a CBC Books producer since 2017. So in 2018, I pitched this idea of a annual list um, highlighting authors of Black heritage during Black History Month in February. Uh, CBC Books publishes an annual Writers to Watch list, but I wanted to call out specifically the great work some of the Black writers uh, were doing at the time. So it's now 2024, a few years removed, and the list is going strong, the reception has been good, and there's been a lot of superstars on the list. Right, and you seem to have a very uh, keen eye for, for, for these stars. Um, everyone on the past list went on to success. Are there some names that you would want to highlight for for particularly living up to their promise? Yeah, so what you said, looking at the list, um, it's been a who's who of successful Canadian authors. Uh, I think the first list back in 2018 included poet and fiction writer Ian Williams, of course, won the Giller Prize in 2019 for reproduction. Uh, Montreal poet Kai Kello was on the list in 2019. Uh, He would go on to win the 2020 Griffin Poetry Prize for his poetry collection, Magnetic Equation. Uh, and then Eternity Martis, um, she was on the list in 2021. She would go on to win the um, Kobo Emerging Writers Prize for nonfiction for her acclaimed work. They said this would be fun. So other names are like Areed Benta, Taya Matanji, Olo Oluruntoba. I've had lots of success identifying authors who would go on to do big things. Mm-hmm. This was an idea in 2017. Mm-hmm. And then um, sometimes you got to be careful what you asked for. People are like, yeah, go do this work. And now you do it every year. But obviously it's important to you and you keep it going. Why do you, uh, well, why is it important to you? I thought about this question a lot, Ali. I think we do need a list dedicated specifically to black authors, Canadian authors in today's world. Uh, we live in an imperfect world. Um, this is an imperfect approach to reflecting the black authors who are writing their lived experience um, by way of their mode of choice, be it poetry, fiction, nonfiction, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still that concept of the ethnic aisle where it's easy to find books by um, BIPOC or black authors in the bookstore. Um, it's easy to find, but it's also easy to ignore. So I, I think this list is important in 2024. And it puts a spotlight on authors who have been marginalized for what they look like and what they write about. So at the end of the day, this list um, that I put out each year is about uh, excellence, black excellence, excellence period in terms of craft and mastery and what have you. So let's talk about this 2024 list then. I know there's three names on this list this year. Who do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with Britta Badur. She's the Ontario spoken word poet and author. Uh, her buzzworthy poetry collection came out last year in 2023 called Wires That Sputter. I know Britta Badur. How does she bring that uh, Mm. energy and, and sizzle that she has on stage as a spoken word artist to uh, to the page. Well, you got it. That sizzle, that energy. I think she's a force. If you've seen her spoken word poetry, mm-hmm. she's a. It's electric. It's vibes. <laughs> it's it's powerful. Uh, and what's cool about the book is she captures that same energy that on stage. It's in this book uh, mm-hmm. on the page. It's, she's speaking about her lived experience as a black mixed race woman uh, who was raised originally from Kingston, Ontario. It's it, it's it's incredible. 
Um, tell me, the the title is called Wires, Wires That, that Sputter. sputter. Um, you read a fair amount, obviously, mm-hmm. Ryan. That is your, your, your passion and your career. What, what made do. this particular book stand out to you? Uh, Wires That Sputter is all about, uh, it connects who she is in terms of what she looks like and what she does uh, and to the world that she lives in. Uh, the poems reflect on like pop culture. She loves basketball. She loves, she's a mixed race. Um, so she explores her connection between both sides of her family and how she identifies as a black woman. And like I said, it captures that live performance, that musicality, that lyrical feel uh, on the page with such poetic power. Mm. Who's the next person? I'm not going to say person. Who's the next honoree mm. on your list. It should be an honor honoree. to be on this list. <laughs> the next honoree is Alberta author Sarah Everett. She's a rising author of books for young adult and middle grade children. Okay. Tell us why you picked her. Uh, her books are all about the specific to the universal. Uh, they're geared for young people, but they feature black characters and she drops them into places and situations that all teens and young readers can relate to. Uh, for example, her debut novel was called Some Other Now. It came out in 2021. Um, this is a heartbreaking contemporary novel about a, uh, a, a girl in this kind of love triangle um, with two brothers. Uh, and it's like an emotional roller coaster. It's a girl uh, looking at tragedy, it's looking at love, it's looking at family dynamics all over the course of one summer. So her latest is called The Probability of Everything. Um, this one actually won the Governor General's Award this year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible. It's a middle grade novel. It's about this girl who dreams of being a scientist. So she's all about science facts and probability. And she explores grief and loss at a very crucial time in her life. Very nice. So it's about a brainy Oddball, mm. basically. <laughs> I, I think that's, that sounds charming. Yeah. I, it's a middle grade novel, mm-hmm. you're saying. You enjoyed it? I enjoyed it. I don't want to give too much away because uh, there's a lot happening here. Uh, essentially, she used, she's 11 years old. She uses her love of science to, de- to actually determine that there's a high chance that there's an asteroid that's going to hit Earth. Uh, I think there's an 84.7% chance uh, she's kind of calculated it uh, in about four days. So what happens next is you have this ticking time bomb, this asteroid hurtling towards Earth. But it's really about the genre conventions of the middle grade novel in terms of exploring race, exploring identity, and exploring what it means to be in a family. Okay. And we are at number three. Who is the third black writer to watch? Drumroll, please. Mm-hmm. Um, third on the list is black Toronto writer and educator Matthew R. Morris. Spoke to him recently about his buzzworthy 2024 essay collection, Black Boys Like Me. Yeah. I, uh, I ran into him in the hallway as you had finished your interview with him. It felt like you had both had a, an incredible conversation. We did. Remind us about him and and about this book. What is this book about? What is this collection of essays? Yeah, about? so he is a uh, mixed race. His father is an immigrant Jamaican. His mother was Polish um, from Canada. And this writing explores the intersection of race, the intersection of black masculinity, hip-hop, culture, education. It's all about being a black boy in Canada. Uh, I think that's a topic that hasn't been explored to any depth in a nonfiction context. So it's about the school system, um, which has historically held back black people. He explores that. It's eight illuminating essays. It's kind of constructed like a mixtape, and he grapples with these questions in terms of identity and perception. I love the mixtape format. That's amazing. Eight stories all together. What would you say your big takeaways are from this book? He writes early in the book that he's not an expert in anything but his own experience. Mm-hmm. So that informs the book. So he uses that specific idea to explore universal ideas of culture, gender, class, and race. And then, like I said, he uses hip-hop. He uses sports. He was a football star uh, in high school. So he explores that, what it means to be a black boy into sports, pop culture, education. And it looks at how black men consume this content and are often consumed by it. It's a very rich text. It asks very timely questions about what it means to be black in today's world. Thanks for all your hard work on this, Ryan. Thanks, Ellie. This is a list that will live long past February and Black History Month. The titles and authors that Ryan suggested are on cbc.ca slash books. Dog-eared. 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 The books that never get old. Hi, I'm Fawn Parker, author of What We Both Know. 
And a book I often go back to is The Collected Stories by Amy Hempel. I think it's a voice that has changed my own writing and my understanding of what writing can do and the emotion that can go into a literary world. A general theme through all of Amy's work is relationships between women, relationships between people and animals, rescue animals and foster animals. And she just has this very, very delicate touch. And I find it sneaks up on me. Sometimes she'll say the subtlest thing and it'll just really blow me away emotionally. I think she's really a master of emotion and the sentence. When it comes to her writing, Sheila Hetty is bold and adventurous. She takes risks. Autobiographical novels like How Should a Person Be and Motherhood, she probes and pushes the nature of the self and the relationships her characters have with art and the people in their lives. She puts the novel in novel. And again, in her latest book, Alphabetical Diaries, Sheila has come up with something inventive and new. To create Alphabetical Diaries, she took 10 years of her diaries and arrange the sentences from A to Z. The result is surprising. Thoughts and ideas loop and recur, and what emerges is a portrait of the writer and what matters to her in terms of life, love, and art. Sheila Hetty, the author of Alphabetical Diaries, joins me now. Hello and welcome back, Sheila. Thanks so much. So before we get to the why you did this, uh, can you explain a little bit about the how? I believe technology was required. Yes, I wouldn't have done this without... Uh, the help of Excel. I always have written um, my diaries very intermittently. Um, But at a certain point, I was just finishing my book, How Should a Person Be, in 2010. And I sort of realized I had all this diary writing on my computer because I write them on a computer. So I don't remember why I had this idea. But yeah, I sort of loaded all, I don't know, half 500,000 words um, of diaries into Excel. And there's a function that says A to Z. Um, and it alphabetizes them. And that's sort of how I started. It's, I'm realizing how smart it is to write your diary online. It's already there. Because sometimes I will write, and mostly it's pen. Yeah. And then the idea of transcribing that from there to the computer is what stops me yeah, from I getting any room. I yeah. can't read my handwriting. But it's not online. It's just on my computer. Online is something different. Um, what was the time frame of the diaries that you uh, fed into the computer program? Um, sort of my mid-20s to mid-30s. So um, around 2005, 2004 to 2013, 14, around there. Okay. A lot of life changes going on during that yes. time. Um, how did this idea come to you? What what made you, what compelled you to do this? I think it was a desire to look at my life or my thoughts about my life in a sort of scientific or pseudoscientific way. You know, if you're reading your diaries, reading back on them narratively, you just get scenes and impressions of scenes and well, that's the mood that I was in that day or that's what Mm. I was grappling with that day. But if you, my premise was, if you alphabetize them, then you see themes, you see repetitions, you can get like a more global view of who you've been. And I was curious, like, have I changed over 10 years? How have I changed? Have my preoccupations changed? So I was sort of of thinking maybe if I alphabetize the sentences, I can look at it, yeah, scientifically or pseudoscientifically. Well, Analytically, anyway. Let's talk about some of the subjects that you that you delve into in your diary. There are day-to-day things like new sheets for the bed uh, or I may lighten my hair a bit. But then there are some deep questions that you pose about the very nature of art and yourself as an artist. What kept propelling you back to those questions and thoughts? I mean, I, I think a diary is the place for those questions and thoughts or one of the places – you know, when when I write in a diary, it's because I have some problem with living or I have something that I'm trying to work through and there's no other place to work through it. So conversations with friends is not quite the place to work through it. Art is not the, quite the place to work through it. So, yeah, you're just sometimes reach these nodes where you're trying to figure out, you know, do I go? What direction should I go in or what are the elements that I need to think about in order to make a decision? So that's why all those thoughts came into mm-hmm. the book. And I think your um, 
your consistency with it, there's something to be said for that because I've done some diary writing and I start very gung-ho. And I last about two to three weeks typically. And only in that last little bit do some real issues come up. For the first few weeks, it's really quite banal, quite mm-hmm. you know, goofy and absurd and just writing for the sake of writing. And then all of a sudden something starts happening. And then I don't know. I get scared maybe. I'm like, oh, my God, this is too real. And I get out. I'm thankful that you did not do that. Throughout many of the chapters, you have reflections and uh, anxieties about books and writing and, and producing. Whether you even want to write fiction, um, you talk about the feeling of you know, being stalled and uncertain. At one point, an editor turns down a book. How do you see your professional life unfolding in these pages? Um, well, I was writing a lot of the diaries while I was writing How Should a Person Be? So I'd published two books already. Tickner and the Middle Stories, but I was, you know, working on a very different project. I, I was working on a project that involved my life and my friends, and um, it was a very exciting time to be writing, but a very uncertain time. I didn't know if I would publish it, how it would, if I would be able to finish the book. So, you know, and then the book is published, and then I go on tour for it, and then I'm working on another book, and all of those sentences are jumbled together. So, you know, there'll be a sentence that is where the book is published. And then a few pages later, there's a sentence where I'm still working on the book. And a few pages later, a sentence where that book is rejected. And it's, it's nice to really remember how hard it was, because I think there's a way in which when you accomplish something, you feel like, well, that was inevitable. And that was easy. And it to go back to these diaries and think, well, no, it was actually really uncertain and really hard. And you forget all the labor that goes into finishing something once you finished it. I really like this idea of writing and then writing about your writing because I found that when I'm writing, it's so all-consuming. You can't do another thing about the but, – but, but it might have been worthwhile to do it. And when I read this book, I'm like, oh, it would have been worthwhile to document thoughts about that process. Mm-hmm. I just – I don't know how you – that's incredible that you have this extra part of your brain that can also, um, you know, compartmentalize – this, the writing and then writing about the writing as well. Well, I guess they're the same thing to me because in so many of my books, they are about how the book was written. So writing the book and thinking about how to write the book, it's all one texture for me. There's lots of love and sex and relationship drama. Some of it reads as a lot of fun. Some of it feels like heartbreak. And there are times that you seem annoyed at yourself for spending time and emotional energy on on love. How much perspective did you gain on this part of your life from this experience of reordering the thoughts in the book? Well, I think the frustration wasn't spending so much time on love. It was spending so much time on thinking about men, thinking about various boyfriends, thinking about relationships that didn't really come to anything. And you think, what a waste of time all that thinking was. I mean, I guess what I started to see, because one of the things that I had to do when I was writing this book was figure out what to do with the names, because I didn't want anyone to read the book and sort of see themselves in it. I didn't want somebody who I dated or had a relationship with to be able to say, well, okay, this character, Lars, that's me. And then look at all the other senses that had Lars in it and know what I thought of them. Um, So what I had to do is sort of make composite characters and make new characters from the sentences. So at one point, I took all the names in the book and just made them he or she, and then built up characters from those sentences, new characters. And I think what doing that showed me was how like the people that we have in our lives, they're individuals, of course, but they're also kind of archetypes of people. Like there's the man that doesn't call you back, or there's the older bossy friend. You know, it was it was interesting to see that you sort of bring into your life these people or these really, you know, these sort of very similar kinds of people or these very similar kinds of relations to people um, that sort of go across individuals. And I wouldn't have known that because when you're living, everyone seems so distinct and so unique and every situation seems so distinct and so unique. But in fact, there are, there's more patterns than you realize, Mm -hmm. more repetition. I wanted to ask you about this idea of writing about people who are no longer in your life, right? You look back at a diary, old photos, you see people are not there, either it's old lovers or former friends, loved ones gone, as you're referring to. Uh, and it's all a, you know, a, a marker of time passing. What did you learn about the nature of time 
you created this book? Well, I think that, I mean, the funny thing is that when you read through it, even though like one sentence might be from, you know, 2010 and the next sentence might be from 2013 and the next sentence from 2007, there is a way in which there still remains a narrative. And so I think what I learned was that chronology matters less than the self. Like who you are remains kind of consistent through time. So a sentence from one year and a sentence from 10 years later put beside each other can can still feel close and to have such a huge relation to each other. So I think I thought that I changed more. And there's something mm-hmm. relieving about the idea that you don't change as much as you think you do. Um, because I think so much in our culture is about changing and improving and, and, and growing. And that does happen, but there's also kind of a, a remarkable consistency over time. Mm. There's a, a sadness certainly attached with the loss of friends, loved ones, whether it's they're not around or, or they're gone. You feel that sadness as you revisited this? No, I didn't really feel any sadness or any kind of emotions, really. Mm. I think I would have felt more if I was reading through them, you know, as they were written. But hearing, seeing a sentence here or a sentence there, it doesn't really... Um, I don't know. I, I was just looking at it more as a puzzle or a project or, or something to – I was thinking about like the rhythm of sentences and, and repetitions and what I wanted to cut more than I was thinking about my life. Uh, one of the things you said about alphabetical diaries, uh, you, you said there were, quote, shockingly few characteristic preoccupations, unquote. Can you expand on that a little bit? What does that mean? Yeah, I, I thought, well – I'm going to find all these different thoughts about all these different things I was thinking about over 10 years. And actually, they could kind of be reduced to very few categories. So I was thinking about how do I make money? Um, There was a bunch of sentences about that. And there was a lot of sentences about whoever I was in love with or obsessed with at the time. Um, And then there are a bunch of sentences about writing and work. And then whether I should leave Toronto or not. And that was kind of all, that, that's 90% of the book or something, or, you know, 70% of the book. And you're just thinking, gosh, I'm such a limited creature. But maybe, I guess we all are, you know. But then on the other hand, like, what is there to think about besides love and work, really? And expanding on that a little bit, you know, we are who we are and we have the thoughts we do and different versions of them. And maybe they change a little bit. But what about this idea of a diary? You know, you mentioned you were writing how should a person be at the time. And it seems like you're figuring that out a little bit in the in the diaries. Is that part of a diary's purpose? Like this is who I am right now. This is who I should be. Does, does a diary serve that purpose or not necessarily? Yeah, I think so. I think you're you're sort of taking stock of yourself and you're thinking – yeah, who do I want to be? What do I want to change? Yeah, I think that the diary is probably a place for that. I wish I wished I used my diaries more for remembering, for really describing scenes. And, you know, sometimes you just want to say, like, what conversations did you have with other people? And what did you actually do rather than what did you think? I sometimes feel frustrated that there wasn't more reporting um, in my diaries. Mm. As I was reading it, I, I, I was struck by the idea of this. These sometimes you're you're writing it, it, the diary entries anyway. Take on this real like staccato rhythm, right? And I I sort of enjoyed reading in that rhythm. And it's the way it, you know it kind of mirrors the way thoughts just sort of appear in our brain, constant, random at times, um, returning to the same subjects these busy minds that, that humans have, um, what, is a, what does a diary do in, in, in terms of that busyness? Does it put our busyness to work? Does it make us feel less busy? Does it put our, you know, does it calm us down? I mean, whenever I went to the diary to write, you know, and it was maybe every few weeks or something like that, or sometimes if I was having some troubles, it would be every day, but um, it was to sort of work through a problem, to come you know, you come to the diary with this sort of muddled head and all these thoughts and all these strands, and you're sort of trying to untangle. Um, at least for me, that's that's why I always wrote them. But the staccato um, nature of the final product is a result of the editing. Like like I said, there was like probably 500,000 words going into it, and now there's 50. Mm. So, you know, you take out every 
you take out 90% of it. And my thoughts for cutting was to make, yeah, a rhythm, to make it sort of musical, um, to give it a kind of pace or tempo. And I don't think that the book was written that way. I think it was edited that way. I really like that word, untangle. I think that's a great way of describing, you know, an an overall purpose of a diary. Often uh, things seem so inconceivable. How can I make sense of all this? And you write it down. You're like, this is not that bad. Just (laughs) writing is just the process of writing really helps in that way, I find. Uh, A diary is, you know, a person reporting on themselves, observing their own behavior often. I wanted to ask last question about this idea of reliable narrator. We talk about that in my home a lot. Are we reliable narrators, especially when we're writing about ourselves? How do you approach that in diary writing? Is it also the idea of like, you know, taking liberties with writing or is the diary really about um, being as reliable to the truth as it is in that moment? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would, I would think so. I mean, you're trying to trying to understand something. I mean, I guess there's different reasons to write in a diary, and some of them are to perform for yourself a certain kind of self, you know? Um, But for me, it's not really a place of performance. It's a place to unravel and understand. And yeah, it's, it's not a construction where I'm trying to make a character that I admire. It's, yeah, a place to be honest and a place to just try to get some perspective and it's a private sort of realm. I mean, obviously, I mean, I've been, I worked on this book for 14 years. So at this point, it's not private. Um, mm-hmm. I knew people were going to be reading it. But when I wrote all this stuff down, it was definitely a, a way of being private and, and thinking alone. Well, thank you very much, Sheila. And as always, your writing has inspired me to, to write more. Well, that's really nice to hear. Yeah. Sheila Hetty is the author of Alphabetical Diaries, and she spoke with me in our Toronto studio. And that is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. And my thanks this week to Trevor Carter, Katie Swales, Sarah Cooper, Emily Carvacio, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, our fifth and final Canada Reads author panelist meetup. I'll talk with Taya Matonji about her book, Shut Up, You're Pretty. And Taya will be joined by the actress Kudakwashi Rotendo, who will champion Taya's book in the Canada Reads debates in March. And Ryan B. Patrick will speak with Kinesia Lubrin about her debut novel, Code Noir. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.